Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Thursday, May 17, 2011, and our special guest today is Chris Guillebeau. Now, Chris, I wanted to say Guillebeau, but I listened to the recording of your book, and the, the guy reading it said it, I think, the other way. How do you say it? You know, Steve, uh, everybody says it a different way, and I learned not to correct them. So I actually say Guillebeau. It's kind of the, the anglicized uh, version of the, the French, which would be Guillebeau or Guillebeau. Um, but, you know, whatever works for you guys works for me. Well, we only have to say it this once. So Chris Guillebeau, his book is The Great. Art of Nonconformity. I had, I had a really good laugh today because I sent out an email and I misspelled conformity. So I sent my brother <laughs> a, a message and I said, I guess I decided not to conform to spelling conventions. Thanks for Great. being here. Really appreciate it. The Future of Education oh, is... Steve, thanks for having me. Good. The Future of Education is sponsored by Learn Central, which is a part of Blackboard Collaborate. It used to be called Wimba and Illuminate. Thanks to Blackboard Collaborate. Also, uh, my Web 2.0 Labs project. So feel free to visit any of those sites, including Classroom 2.0, the Global Education Conference, Library 2.0, Aula 2.0, uh, which is having a big 50-session uh, conference next week, which all in Spanish, so a virtual conference, and of course, Student 2.0. Coming up on June 25th in Philadelphia, our annual EduBloggerCon event. If you haven't been, this is a really fun activity. It is free. It's all day. You do not need to be registered for the ISTE conference, although it does precede that conference. Uh, we build the agenda at the beginning of the day. We have lots of fun activities. So edubloggercon.com for more information. If you are going to ISTE, we do have the Bloggers Cafe and ISTE Unplugged. ISTE Unplugged is a chance for you to present if you've never presented before or if there's something you wanted to present about and weren't accepted. Or even if it's a brand new topic, go to istiunplugged.com, sign yourself up. We have a presentation area. We stream those presentations live so that people who aren't at ISTE get uh, some portion of the benefit. Uh, it's a lot of fun, and that does fill up as we get closer. So uh, uh, do feel free to join that and add yourself in. We have announced dates for our Global Education Conference this year, November 14th to 18th. This was a terrific event last year, uh, five days. Over 400 presentations from 62 countries, 15,000 logins. We expect to grow this year. So a lot of fun. We'll be announcing a call for presentations pretty soon. It's globaleducationconference.com. Coming up on the future of education next week, Steve Denning about his book, Radical Management. Sir Ken Robinson comes back to talk about the revised version of his book, Out of Our Minds. Uh, the week after that, James Bosco asks, is there actually participatory learning? And we have a panel on unschooling and lots more coming up. Hope you'll find something there that you want to join us for. If you've missed the session, they are all recorded at futureofeducation.com. You can find the links to the full Illuminate recordings and also the podcast stream and the MP3 links. Um, lots of fun there. We talked to Mark Fenske earlier this week. His book, um, oh, what is his book? Mark's book was, I don't have it in front of me. Um, it's going to come to me. The Winner's Brain, uh, again, one of our books in the cognitive series. Uh, really a fun interview. Um, in, in fact, there's going to be some interplay, I think, with the, the topics tonight. Uh, Paul Kimmelman on the School Leadership Triangle, Hugh McGuire on LibriVox.org. Uh, we had our passion panels. Lots of fun. If this is your first time in Illuminate, uh, we hope that you'll find ways to participate. You can uh, leave notes in the chat area. I'm going to recommend that uh, everybody go up to View Layouts and switch to the wide layout. I wish there was a way to default to that, but it is a better layout, especially for chatting. You can use the emoticons at the bottom of the participant window to express your feelings. Happy faces, clapping. There is a frowny face and a thumbs down. I don't expect we'll see those tonight. Uh, that larger icon of the hand with the green up arrow, that's how you raise your hand. Feel free to do that. You can, we'll give you the microphone and you can ask Chris a question if you have one. Right now for the live listeners, we're going to give you a chance to let us know where you're listening from. Look for the wand to the left of the map. It's the, the blue stick with the red star at the end. Click on that and then click on the map. We have our Australian-New Zealand contingent again. 
Bishop. I'm glad to have you here. With a guest like Chris, we should have dots all over the map, I would expect. <laughs> David says it's still raining in the Rockies. I think you're getting that rain that uh, we had this past weekend. Alaskan cold front. Auckland, thanks for being here. Wherever you're listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we really appreciate your being here. So Chris, this was a really fun book for me, uh, in large part because when I bought it, I was going through a process of working with my, my own children to kind of re-envision their futures in a world in which I was seeing such dramatic changes in terms of the possibilities of what could be accomplished. And mm -hmm. I'm not going to give you full credit, but I will tell you that um, uh, it made a big difference for our, our first child and daughter who um, you know, was, was very much in an obedience mindset and has sort of branched out and done some really wonderful things. And our second daughter, who is leaving in July to um, spend six months to a year in Nepal with a humanitarian organization, taking a gap year before she uh, thinks about college. So I have kind of a personal connection to the material, and I want to first, I, I think, thank you for it. Oh, well, you're welcome, and thank you for, for sharing that with me. And I'm, I'm just honored to be here and be a part of your great work. I love this uh, format that you have set up, and it's obvious that you have this huge body of work that you guys have been building on, so happy to be a small part of it. And as for taking full credit, you know, I would never do that um, because, you know, often when people come to projects like the Art of Nonconformity or somebody else's project, you know, they, they, they're kind of, they're drawn to it or they come to something like that because they're already thinking about change or they're already thinking about transition or they're already thinking about you know, how they can do something unconventional. So, so it's almost like a self-identified kind of thing. So by the time someone actually comes to my work or somebody else who's, who's doing, you know, similar work, um, you know, they're already kind of ready to do something. And so, you know, what I'm trying to do is hopefully provide some tools or resources or maybe some stories of what other people have done. But really it's all in that process of, you know, someone raising their hand and saying, yes, you know, I want to do something different. I want to go and spend a semester or a gap year in Nepal or, I want to, you know, not do things the way that they've always been done. So I'm, I'm just grateful that I have a community of people like that that I can connect from time to time. Yeah, I'm thinking. I'm looking at the cover of the book there and thinking, yeah, there are a lot of people who would just pass that book by on the table and not even pick it up. You know, there is something about nonconformance that um, uh, that we'll talk about here in terms of how people approach it. Um, I I felt it was a really balanced approach. And I, I don't know if you often get that comment, but I was looking for some way to sort of communicate to my children the value of thinking outside of the box and maybe not doing necessarily what others were doing. And I liked the degree to which your book didn't feel like a free-for-all. It felt like a sort of a very thoughtful approach to this idea of, you know, how do you do things differently? And it reminded me right. of a lot of other motivational literature. So what's the difference between... I mean, you have lots of quotes in the book that, are, that clearly show these are not new ideas necessarily. What makes your sure. book so particularly compelling at this moment? That's a good question. Uh, it's, it's funny that you use the word balance because, uh, it, you know, I, uh, sometimes I say balanced people don't change the world, you know, and uh, in, in general I'm kind of opposed to the idea of balance in, in some ways. But I understand completely what you mean in terms of uh, it's, it's not a free-for-all. It's not an anarchist thing. It's not a, uh, you know, do everything, you know, that you want. I, I guess, um, I mean, for me, it probably comes through my own life history and my own experience, uh, especially the four years that I spent uh, working overseas in West Africa. Um, you know, I, I had always been fortunate to be self-employed and to be able to have, to be able to set my own schedule um, but I, I guess, you know, in, in some of my early adult years, I had achieved that and that I felt that that was, you know, that was significant and that was great. But I also found that it was ultimately unfulfilling, you know, just to kind of do my own thing. And so I felt challenged personally, you know, to kind of contribute to something bigger than myself. Um, and that's what I did, you know, overseas and then through some of my other work. So I guess um, in terms of the book, 
and the blog and the whole project and what I'm trying to do, you know, the, the central message of it is you don't have to live your life the way other people expect you to. And you can do good things for yourself and for others at the same time. So it's not a false choice. It's not a dichotomy. Um, you can pursue a big dream, a big quest, you know, whatever that is. And for me, it's, uh, you know, to visit every country in the world. Other people, it's something different. Um, and then hopefully you can also connect that goal with, uh, with service to others. And ultimately in doing so, it's not, it's, you know, the whole part about contribution um, is it's not something that is completely selfless. You know, as we seek to contribute, um, as opposed to just consuming, you know, all the time. As we seek to contribute, like, it actually benefits us as well, and, and you know, our, we find meaning in contribution. So I think, um, you know, I don't know how unique it is. Certainly other people talk about this in different ways, and that's fine and great. Um, so I would say the reason why the book has been popular is maybe because people are drawn to this message in this way. Maybe they relate to it, and maybe it, you know, speaks to something uh, in, in their own lives. But hopefully what I want to do is, is you know, challenge people's thinking in a good way and encourage people to, um, you know, pursue some of those possibilities and opportunities that you, you talked about in your introduction. I feel very much like, for me, part of the, the enormous relevance of the book at this moment is that we're at a period of time in history when it feels as though greater numbers of people can actually do this because of the communications tools that we have and because of the ability to be um, to almost go back to the um, independent farmer kind of life as you construct businesses around the web that, that you couldn't have done 10 or 15 years ago. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we it's it's totally true. You don't want to, in a way, you don't want to like you know overemphasize or exaggerate um, you know the growth of humanity and technology because things have always been evolving and you know no matter where you've lived, you've always lived in a more advanced age than the one before you, but you know, I would say that, um, you know, the age we're living now, it is a, a beautiful age of democratized information where we can reach out and we can have this forum right now where we have people in Australia and New Zealand and people all over North America and maybe elsewhere, um, you know, talking about these kind of things. We could have never done something like that before. So this, this brilliant, you know, age and opportunity um, presents so much possibility. And... Um, you know, in some ways, it's very tempting to believe that the world is, um, you know, just becoming smaller and smaller um, with the tools of connection, with the way to, we have to start businesses and to, you know, start projects or causes and connect with people. And at the same time, you know, there's still a lot of people, you know, uh, who are being kind of left out of this world. And there's still a lot of people who don't have clean water every day. And there's still a lot of people who don't have, you know, access to basic health care, access to education. So I think... Um, you know, when we talk about possibilities and opportunities, um, we have to kind of consider kind of a 360 approach. We have to say, okay, what are the possibilities and opportunities for, for us, you know, with all these great freedoms that we have? Um, and then what can we do as well to kind of uh, expand freedom and expand possibility, you know, for other people around the world, not to um, plan their future for them or not to make decisions for them, but to help uh, people have the same kind of freedoms um, that we have. So it is a beautiful, you know, brilliant age of uh, you know, just widespread information and connection, but not everyone has access to it. We've talked on the show a lot about kind of the tool du dual competing narratives around humanity, one being freedom and the other being control. And it seems as though in many ways what we're seeing in Egypt and in the Arab world are uh, what we saw in Wisconsin with teachers, what, what we're seeing in businesses having to respond to uh, customers who now have voice, that we're seeing a shift in power, and um, that we're that it seems very healthy this idea that you balance freedom and control. You choose, and you say in the book that you choose freedom as your highest personal value. Do you think that's something that that we lost? Um, sh um, feels very much like that should be a part of uh, those of us who've grown up in democratic societies. Um, is, is that something that uh, you notice that people don't necessarily think about? Well, I think it's contextual. I think it depends on, uh, you know, how we've all grown up uh, in our different cultures and in families, what kind of education we had and how traditional it was or, or non-traditional. Um, you know, I, I guess... Um, you know, in my case, I grew up um, with a, a split family. I had two different sets of parents living in different parts of the 
country, um, and, and parts of the childhood were not so good, but other parts were good. And one of the parts that was was great uh, was that my dad was very supportive of reading, and he always bought books for me. And uh, reading books for me was always a fun thing, and it wasn't like a chore or something. And I think that that came from my dad because he would take me to bookstores and you know just buy me whatever book I wanted, and he wouldn't ask about the title or say, do you really want to read that or that's too grown up for you or whatever. And so I, in some ways, um, you know, I had a lot of freedom in that regard, at least intellectual freedom, and I could believe whatever I wanted or ask questions of whoever. And so um, I think that certainly contributed to me in my own career and like becoming a, a writer later. Um, you know, in other areas, maybe I didn't have that freedom. And for, for other people, it's just, um, I don't know if I want to say that, you know, freedom is something that's been lost. I would say freedom is something that's unfamiliar to some people, um, depending on, you know, where you work um, and what your, your background is. I mean, some people are still threatened by the idea of self-employment. Some people, you know, still very much find security in a, in a traditional job and feel like, um, you know, if they were to go out on their own, that would be very scary and, and threatening. Um, and maybe it would, depending on their context. But the interesting thing is, you know, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who say things like, uh, you know, for me it would be very risky to go and try to compete uh, you know, in a crowded marketplace, you know, in, in a marketplace for a traditional job. And for me, the, the least risky, you know, solution, and therefore the most freeing solution, is to be on my own. So it's not necessarily that, uh, you know, those people are risk takers or, you know, pursuing something dangerous. I mean, they could have chosen a conservative approach by, you know, pursuing uh, the quest of freedom. I, I, um have been reading Noam Chomsky this year, and that I, we joke that that's always sort of a dangerous thing. But it's very interesting to me to sort of put this in the, maybe in the larger context of work and how we approach our lives. And one of the things that I've noticed since reading Chomsky is the degree to which we sort of have subsumed our loyalties and thought processes to the organizations that we work for. There's sort of an assumption that you will, if you work for a certain company, that becomes then your loyalty and the thing that you promote. Oftentimes, maybe to the um, to the exclusion of actually thinking something through and coming to a different conclusion. So for me, it's sort of an interesting moment in history, believing that we are now um, becoming less and less controlled, uh, and that's not a conscious control, but sort of less and less controlled by those organizations that we work for or participate in. And, and we have to be in a place where we can think thoughtfully and in a concerted fashion about what we really do believe. So what sure. kind of pushback do you get on the material? Well, you know, I like, um, I was just reading this uh, chat window here and I see something David said. He said, freedom gets associated with being selfish. Um, don't you think? And I, and I agree. I would say often, um, you know, some people do feel threatened by others' freedom, uh, even if it doesn't affect their lives, you know, even if it's something that uh, is completely independent and, you know, not uh, related to them. I think, um, you know, they perceive a threat to their their belief structure or their worldview, or they think uh, maybe it isn't fair that, you know, somebody else can do this when they have to do this, or maybe there was something, um, maybe it's something personal in their lives that they always wanted to do, but they made different choices, and now they uh, regret that. And so there's kind of a projection that takes place, um, not, not just in relation to me, but I would say anybody who kind of pursues freedom, anyone who does something, you know, um, that is an individualistic quest or, or is perceived, you know, as being uh, individual. So in, in, the, in the book, I tell the story of um, um, this guy who rode his bicycle across the country and did so um, not to raise money for charity, um, but he just did it for himself. He just did it kind of as a self-discovery, you know, process, and he had been through some difficult times in his life. He had lost a relationship, and, and uh, I think his, his father had died as well. And so he just went on this, uh, you know, cross-country bicycle quest and talked about how no one really understood it. And if it was, you know, if it was being done for charity, then people would think, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting, but he just said, I wanted to do it uh, for myself. So sometimes people don't, don't understand that. So that's um, that's some of the pushback. I guess the other pushback would be, uh, well, not everyone else, not everyone can do this, you know. And um, I guess my response to that would be, well, um, 
you know, a, a lot of people can, first of all, and a lot of what I like to do, um, you know, in my work, I'm not trying to tell anyone what to do. I would never do that. Um, but what I want to do is help expand possibility and expand opportunity for others. So I always talk to people about their own goals and say, okay, you know, if you want to do this thing, how can we, you know, how can we make that happen and how can we reverse engineer the process and what are the obstacles, you know, standing in the way. So I think, uh, you know, Martin Luther King said, um, I might be paraphrasing this, but I, I believe he said, nothing pains some people more than having to think. So, you know, having to think in some cases, you know, is it, difficult and it's disruptive um, because we get in a situation where, you know, we're just kind of coasting along and if something challenges our worldview, then, then we find that, uh, you know, we find that threatening and, and uncomfortable. So I'm interested in the sort of the um, degree to which we experience social conformity or pressures for social conformity um, and how um, um, at least, in, you know, I graduated from college in 1983, so it felt like there was a real premium on conformity, that that was the appropriate way to act, or at least that's what I was taught. Um, Craig asks in the chat, freedom needs to be balanced with the responsibility, does it not? How do you respond to that kind of a question? Uh, I would respond by saying I agree. And I think, um, you, you know, you quoted, um, you quoted, we began this conversation by you saying something about uh, in the book it says freedom is my highest value. I think uh, what I said was you know freedom is my highest value, but gratitude is a close second. And uh, so for me very much I feel like um, you know yes it, we do have all these opportunities. We do have so much freedom. We can create our own lives. I mean to even be able to talk about these questions, you know, uh, to be even be able to say like okay what kind of work would we like to do with our lives. And how would we like to spend our time? You know, I mean, these are very unusual, you know, privileged uh, questions. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't ask them. I mean, it's great. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing, you know, that we can do it. But I think um, uh, it, it does create that sense of responsibility. I, I, I guess I don't always use the word responsibility in that sense, uh, although I agree with it. Because responsibility sounds kind of like a heavy word. You know, it sounds like... Um, it sounds like a word that involves sacrifice, uh, you know, or compromise or something. But my view of freedom is, uh, you know, number one, we can, you know, pursue our own life. We can, you know, find a way to construct, a, you know, kind of find a way to align our work and our life and create this convergence. Um, but also, you know, we want to create connection with others. We want to have that contribution. And it's, as we pursue both of those things, that's, in fact, that's where we're going to find uh, our fulfillment. So, you know, I can only speak from my own experience and, uh, you know, for Jolie and I, when we uh, went to West Africa, we were there for four years, and uh, we would come back. We, we were um, volunteering for a medical NGO. We would come back like once a year. We'd see our family, and uh, people would say things like, "Oh, you guys have sacrificed so much," and you know, to do this. And and um, you know, we would say, "Oh, actually, it's not that much of a sacrifice because this is really good for us, and this is the best decision that that uh, we've ever made." So. It's probably too long of an answer, but um, the answer is in short, I agree. I just think it's, uh, it's not a heavy thing. It's uh, actually a very integral and, and, uh, and good thing. But I see somebody has their hand raised. You know, we're going to wait to take the audio questions until a little bit later just because it's hard to get through the material if we start taking the audio ones now. But, okay, great. But, uh, so saying we, I, we will let you be first when that comes up. Um, Lydia asks, any thoughts about how to support someone else in their quest for freedom and nonconformity? You know, Steve, I'd be interested to know uh, how you'd answer that question. But for me, I would say, um, you know, it's always contextual. I would say, if, you know, when someone's interested in pursuing these ideas, it really helps to go from the general to the specific. It really helps to uh, say, okay, you know, you're attracted to um, unconventional living or nonconformity or whatever you choose to call it. You don't have to call it a label. You know, these are just terms, but you're, you're attracted to doing something different. Um, what, what does that look like for you? And I would say uh, maybe the first thing is, um, you know, to help people kind of figure out what that is and to help them say, you know, okay, uh, I'm going to go from a general idea to specifically this is what it looks like. It's okay if I don't have the whole answer, but maybe this is part of it, you know. And then, um, you know, just helping them feel like, um, especially if it's, a, if it's a family member or a close friend, helping them feel like it's okay to do that. Um, you know, I really do think that, that a lot of people um, already have ideas and dreams and maybe even goals, but they're just waiting for someone to kind of come along and give them permission. They're just waiting for someone to say, you know, it's okay 
you know, to do this. Um, and so it's a tricky thing because uh, none of us, you know, certainly not me, none of us really have the authority, you know, to give someone permission. Um, it's something they have to take for themselves. But yet um, it can help, to, you know, to, to kind of um, bridge that middle ground and, and help people see, like, okay, what's keeping you from doing this? And really you can do this and it's, it's okay. You know, and in fact, um, you know, maybe other things in your life are going to get better if you pursue this. So I would say, you know, believing in people, um, helping them, uh, you know, specify what they really want to do, and then maybe there's some action steps that can follow then, you know, in terms of getting them closer to that. So I would like, I'm, uh, would you be comfortable telling the monkey story right now? Because I want to make a connection. And it seems to me that our brains might even be wired in such a way as to conform as a part of social structure. And I'm thinking of the, you know, the reports of people not stopping for someone who's injured. Um, where if, or or um, or not or not helping someone, and the larger the crowd, the more likely it is that no one will stop. So, are you willing to right, tell the monkey right. story? Yes, I'm totally willing to tell it. I'm just trying to remember all the details uh, of that monkey story. Um, so I, I might get it wrong, but you can correct me if I do. Um, and this has been told a, a few different ways. Um, but the way I wrote it in the book was, uh, you know, there there are some monkeys that are kind of you know thrown into a cage, and there's a stalk of bananas that is hung from the top of the cage. And uh, the bananas are up there looking great. Um, but as soon as, uh, you know, one of the monkeys climbs to the top of the cage to grab a banana, uh, you then, you know, from out of nowhere, um, the, the monkey is squirted with water. And not only the monkey that climbed to the top of the cage, but then all of the monkeys uh, at the bottom are also punished, you know, with this squirt of cold water. Um, so, you know, the monkeys try a couple more times. Pretty, much, pretty soon they figure out um, you know, as soon as you start climbing the cage, then you're going to get soaked, uh, you know, with the water hose. They, they stop doing it. And then, you know, a couple days later, um, another monkey is introduced to the mix. And this monkey doesn't have the history, so the monkey comes into the cage and sees the bananas at the top and, you know, immediately starts going for it. And the other monkeys know what's going to happen, so the other monkeys kind of band together and pull that monkey down basically, and, and just prevent that monkey from getting the bananas, even though that monkey has no idea, you know, of the consequences. So basically, there's this kind of group think that occurs to protect the group. So the interesting thing is, you know, over the course of, of more days, um, you know, they, they add more monkeys to the cage and they replace some of the original monkeys. So by the time, you know, they come to the end, um, none of the original monkeys are actually in the cage. Um, but all of them, for some reason, know that no one is allowed to get the bananas. Right, so as soon, you know, as soon as any monkey comes in and tries to get bananas, then they kind of, you know, attack that monkey and prevent uh, the water. But no one really knows why, because no one's actually had that experience. Um, and I think, um, you know, you know, that's completely related to the example you mentioned about um, groupthink, about how um, when there's a large number of people, you know, we behave in a certain way. Um, sometimes it's easier to get help if it's a smaller number of people. Uh, when I did my book signings, I, cause that story is in the first chapter of the book, and it's probably written better than I just told it now. But uh, when I did my book signings, um, I would sign, you know, I would sign "Grab the Bananas," and then I would sign my name, and then I also had a monkey stamp uh, printed up that I, I used for the inscription. So you told it exactly as I remember from the book. Uh, it was hard for me to read that story okay. and not think about schooling. <laughs> And there are a variety of people who've written, including uh, John Taylor Gatto, who's mentioned up there by Dr. Dr. Deason. There are a number of people who've written about why public schooling was started the way that it was, from social control to uh, enculturating immigrants uh, to, um, sorry, to preparing people for and sort of weeding out to get to those who would sort of run the society or have higher education. And it, you know, I, I'm often sort of wonder about um, how you reconcile those stories with sort of the current motivations of the teachers and administrators I know, which are all, you know, they're, they're devoted, passionate individuals. But that story, for me, kind of helped to represent how you can be involved in a system and not realize that your behaviors and, and actions are actually responses to um, the way things were set up uh, long, long ago. Oh, oh right. Chris, I th I, Chris says I'm, uh, my audio is bleeding. I think that's actually Chris because I'm seeing a slow connection on your part for the audio, so I apologize. Um, it should be okay. Um, so th that was a really interesting story for me, and it reminded me then again of sort of how hard it is to break away oftentimes from what other people are doing. Um, how do you 
um, how might you talk to, if you were talking to students and teachers about finding their own passions and pursuing them, um, what kinds of things do you think uh, that you would start telling them about that might make a difference for them? Okay. Yeah, very good. Um, when someone's trying to figure, basically when someone's trying to figure themselves out and when they're trying to figure out, you know, okay, what, what is my passion? I want to do something interesting, um, you know, but what is it? Um, there, there's a few things I recommend. And so they're all, they're all exercises of, uh, you know, self-interviews and just kind of taking stock and outlining and maybe brainstorming. Um, but I guess the first thing I would say to someone who's, who's in that position is, um, okay, let's talk, about, let's talk about what excites you. And so if I ask you this question, you know, what excites you? Um, what gets you out of bed in the morning? If the answer is school or a job, you know, that's totally fine. Um, you know, no need to think about eliminating that. But just imagine you didn't have to get out of bed in the morning for school or a job. You know, then, then what would you do? And what would you really be excited about? What would you be passionate about? And I, I very much um, believe in this line of inquiry. I like what uh, Steve Jobs said. He said, uh, you know, your life is, your, your time is limited. So don't waste it living someone else's life. And uh, I like to start with this. But I also think, um, I think it's a good start, but it's a little bit incomplete because there's lots of things that we're excited about, but again, that's only half of the equation. So the second thing I ask is think about what bothers you. So we've got two questions here, you know, what excites you and what bothers you? And, and what bothers you is, you know, almost a, kind of a deeper question or it, help, it makes people think a little bit more because there's all kinds of problems in the world. There's all kinds of things that are wrong with the world. Um, so the question is, what bothers you? You know, what, which, uh, which problem are you most concerned about? If you could solve one problem, you know, in the world, uh, which would it be? And, um, and then let's think about that. Let's think about, um, you know, is there a connection between these things? Is there a connection between the passion and then what bothers you? Is there a connection between what you want to pursue and, you know, how you can make the world a better place? And it doesn't have to be su su such a higher level thing. It doesn't have to be, like, a lot of people just don't know. And that's also okay. So, I would say, you know, probably the third thing is just don't be afraid to, to try things. And, uh, you know, our, our histories, our life journeys are made up of all the different experiences that we've had. And so the broader experiences we can have, you know, so much the better. I, w I was an entrepreneur for a number of years. Then I lived in West Africa for a number of years. You know, um, then I came back to the United States and went to grad school. Um, you know, I pursued a, a variety of different you know, pseudo careers, you know, during all this. And, and I'm so grateful that I did. And I love what I'm doing now in terms of writing and connecting with people, but I, I wouldn't be able to do this were it not for everything else that I had done. So I'm also a big advocate of just, um, of just saying yes to things and um, not, not filtering so much. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of advice um, about filtering and about um, being very selective about what we do and what we choose. And I think, um, you know, I would never criticize what works for someone else. If that works for someone, that's great. But uh, I'm a little bit skeptical of, of giving that advice to someone who's just trying to, to figure out, you know, what they're good at and what they want to do in the world because some, sometimes the only way we can figure that out is just by trying different things. So, you know, I've, I've often heard advice about how you should say no to, you should say no ten times for every one thing you say yes to. You know, in my life it's certainly been the opposite. I've said yes to so many things and, uh, and I'm, and I'm so much the better for it. So I guess I start by getting people to think about, you know, what they're motivated by, what excites them, also what concerns them or bothers them. And I also just encourage people to have uh, to have a wide, you know, wide array, array of experiences and uh, and cultures. And and you know, travel is good, but if you can't travel, there's still ways to be you know exposed to different to people from different cultures and different walks of life. So that's also good. So Mayadur asked. What mental attitudes do you feel are essential to cultivating freedom and comfort with a nonconformist life and work style? And, and I think that's a really good question because when you're taking this different path, you're likely to encounter different mental challenges than you otherwise would. Yeah, very quick, good question. I'm just reading this again. What mental attitudes do you feel are essential to cultivating freedom? Um, you know, I guess I guess one would be open-mindedness, which uh, which sounds fairly basic, but um, most of us are actually not very open-minded. Uh, even even if we think we're open-minded, we we often you know we, we we are very set in our ways, and we have things that we believe that um, you know we think are right, whether we think they're right for other people or not. We 
pretty much have uh, our own worldview, and that's fine. But I, I would say part of um, you know cultivating freedom and comfort with a nonconformist life and work style is being open to new ideas, um, not necessarily welcoming welcoming them, you know, and replacing your belief system, but just being uh, being open to different worldviews or open to different experiences. So that's one mental attitude. Um, I guess the, the attitude that it's okay to be wrong and it's okay if something doesn't, you know, work out. I mean, that, that's always an interesting thing because uh, I'd be curious to know what you and the rest of the group think about, about failure. Um, I'm kind of of two minds. I definitely think we can learn from failure and I've made so many mistakes in my life and continue to do so and I wouldn't be able to do what I do if I, I hadn't made a lot of mistakes. At the same time, you know, um, failure is not usually fun. I mean, it can be a learning experience, but it's not good. I would rather avoid it if I could. So um, I think it was um, Jason Fried from 37 Signals who said uh, failure is overrated. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it's okay if you fail and you can learn from it, but if you have to choose between the two, why wouldn't you, you know, set yourself up for success? Um, but I would say just in general, you know, an attitude of, of being willing to try things and see see where they lead, and probably some other things I could think of, but you probably have some things to share as well. So the failure one is interesting because I'm not sure I fully thought this out before, but there's a difference between failing and learning from your own failures and other people trying to stop you from failing, um, which isn't always mm -hmm. a bad thing, but I think lots of times mm. the desire to not allow failure robs individuals of their opportunities to grow. I'm going to have to think more about mm. that. Um, That's good. Uh, we've had Jim Bach on the show and um, Dale Stevens, who's the oncology guy, and several people who had sort of unconventional educational experiences. And I think that relates to their uh, view of what's valuable in education and what's not. Uh, could you briefly talk about your own education? <laughs> yes, my own educational history. Uh, you, you warned me this was coming, and, and my own educational history probably shouldn't, uh, you know, be a model or something that uh, other people want to replicate. Uh, it's just kind of, uh, I just kind of cobbled it together through uh, a variety of experiences. But in, in my case, uh, I was a high school dropout. Uh, I went to maybe I went to one year of high school, and it, uh, uh, it just it didn't didn't work very well for me, not just educationally, but behaviorally, and uh, just had some family issues and all kinds of stuff happening. So um, dropped out of high school. Um, now, I was always a very active learner. Like I said, I was a big reader, so I read lots of books and, and no problem there. Um, so, you know, after being out of, out of high school for a year at age 16, uh, I found a way to kind of sneak into community college uh, at age 17. And uh, they, when I went to community college, they had, they, I managed to finish the first quarter before they realized I didn't have a high school degree. And by that point, I had done pretty well, and so I thought, well, we'll just let him keep going. So. Um, I eventually, I was able to transfer uh, from community college to a four-year institution. Because I was a transfer student, you know, from a junior college, then they didn't ask about the high school degree. So I was just able to kind of, you know, keep doing that. And then um, I, I liked I liked the learning process. I decided to study sociology and, and psychology, so some behavioral sciences. And I liked the, the learning process, but um, I was always kind of goal-oriented, um, which I, I still am. That's kind of the visiting every country in the world thing. And so the, the goal-orientated, uh, you know, college goal became, uh, let me see how quickly I can do this, um, which in retrospect may not be have been the best choice. But at the time, you know, I was 17 and, um, you know, was going to community college and I transferred to the upper level institution and I took as many credits as I could, you know, at one institution and then I all simultaneously registered at another one and I went back to the community college. So all told, I was taking like 40 to 50 credits um, a term. And somehow managed to, you know, you know, do this over about two years and transfer all the credits to the four-year institution. And I graduated with, uh, you know, a BA in sociology and a BS in behavioral sciences. As I said, it probably wasn't the best educational experience, um, but at the time I was impressed, you know, because I was 19 and I had two college degrees, and I thought, wow, this is great. Um, so I'm not sure what I learned about the subjects, but nevertheless, um, you know, it was good to good to be done. So I never really you know, applied those degrees in, in the job market. I started a business and, you know, I uh, played jazz music at night. And then, you know, when I was 22, I moved to West Africa and, and was there for four years. Uh, and then while I was there, you know, I guess I, I began to, to feel like I'd missed something 
because of this experience, um, not really because of high school, but because I had kind of rushed through the college thing so much. And so I began, I, I realized, um, or I thought, I perceived that, that I was missing something. And so then I applied to graduate school at the University of Washington in an international studies program and uh, was able to go to that. So I did that from 2006 to 2008. And so that was probably my only experience in like real academia of actually like following a, you know, following a course and, and doing research. And, and overall it was good. I, I, didn't, um, I, I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. I feel like um, I didn't learn a great deal about my field, but I did learn, I did improve as a writer certainly. Um, and so that helped me in the writing career that followed. And I definitely learned a bit more about analytical thinking and logical thinking and learning to kind of, you know, piece apart different arguments. So, um, so overall it was good, but it was definitely, you know, non-traditional. I would say probably when I think about education, I think about what I've learned, you know, from interacting with people. And so I've learned a great deal, you know, from working overseas. I've learned a great deal from traveling to 150 countries. And um, the graduate school experience was also good, um, but it was one, you know, one component of it. And, uh, and I had the chance, uh, you know, after I finished the master's degree, I had a chance to go on to do a PhD, and I, I thought that's what I had wanted to do. And of course, uh, you know, I'm so glad looking back, this is maybe three years on, I'm so glad that I didn't do that. Um, not to say that PhD is a, is a bad thing to do, but for me that would have been the, the wrong choice because I probably wouldn't be here you know, talking with you now, I wouldn't have the writing career, I wouldn't have the whole other thing. So uh, for me, I'm glad I stopped at the master's level. It did feel to me like... Long answer, no, good answer. It felt to me like there was a kind of a visible contrast between uh, sort of how you quickly got through school and all of those credits and the kind of uh, deep, uh, important, non-urgent sort of quadrant four legacy work, um, that in order to find things that you care about and are passionate about, they require sort of more depth and time. You know, looking back, if you were to invent a school, um, would that be a part of uh, what you would want to create as, as an environment that allowed for that kind of deeper thought? Yeah, you know, I was worried you were going to ask me uh, what kind of school I would like to create or what kind of education system. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm really not sure. I mean, I, I look at this body of work that you put together with this project, and I feel like, um, you know, so many other people can answer that question uh, much better than me because, you know, I, I had the grad school experience, but nevertheless, you know, everything else that I've done and everything I've done outside of that has been, uh, you know, away from an, an academic uh, context. So, you know, obviously I think whatever school I would want to create or be a part of would be, um, you know, heavily based on experience, uh, heavily, you know, based on independent learning. Um, but I also, you know, it, it's tricky because I also don't want to be overly prescriptive and I also know not everyone thinks the way that, that I do or thinks the way that you do and, you know, we all have different learning styles and uh, it's a very complicated thing. So I guess um, I guess I would say I'm fortunate that, you know, that I'm, up, I'm out of that system. I'm fortunate that I have a way that I can, you know, communicate with, with my community and, uh, a way that I can do something that hopefully contributes. But if I were to be a part of a formal system, I really wouldn't know where to start. So I would probably start by deferring to, you know, those who have gone before. But um, I don't know if that's good, good either. I don't know. It's a very thoughtful answer. I'll tell you, having spent several <laughs> years now interviewing people from a who have a wide range of perspectives on education, um, that I think it's a good answer which is that, that, that people have very different views and that um, personally I feel like it's important to, to allow the freedom to, for people to choose their own kind of educational setting. I will say I'm particularly drawn to a democratic education where the students are involved in the actual running of the school. Um, and, I, and I think for a lot of the same reasons because it's a, a much more active engagement in allowing them to decide what they want to do. Um, which yeah. leads me a little bit to a question I'm not sure we want to fully open the door to, but, but you and I did, I did mention to you that I would ask it, which is sort of this question of adolescence and, and responsibility. And uh, um, uh, Robert Epstein and John Taylor Gatto who, who talk about uh, the degree to which we've created adolescence as a part of our Western cultures and it didn't exist before and that many other cultures don't have this period of time. We're sort of sheltered from the world and don't participate. Um, do you feel like you were ready to participate in the world um, at a younger age and that might have been a part of why you 
just skip those two years of high school and um, kind of moved on the way you did? Yeah, it's a good question. It sounds like a fascinating book. Uh, you, you mentioned it earlier, and I just went to to look at it uh, on Amazon. I hadn't heard of it before, but it, I, I would love to learn more about that idea. Um, you know, obviously, I can't speak for the the greater issue, but for me, I, I think uh, I think sure, I, I was certainly ready to do a lot of things. I mean, and it, it's tricky, right? Because you know, in some ways, I was ready to do things, and I wasn't a good fit in the job market, and I was a terrible employee. So, you know, I always. So that's why I've been an entrepreneur since I was 19 because I didn't want to work for someone else. Um, and you know, yes, I wasn't good in high school, and yes, I was able to kind of work the system and you know go through my undergrad really quickly. Um, so maybe some things I was ready for, but other things not. You know, I don't know. I guess um, you know I always try to I always try to draw a line between age and experience, and I think experience definitely. Helps, um, but you can you can be at any age and not have experience in something. Whereas you could be young and and have and you could grow up in an unschooling family. Uh, you could grow up in a missionary family or an aid worker family or state department family, and you grow up around the world. So you have these different experiences and context, and you know you could be much more advanced in many things than than people you know twice your age or more. Um, but I also think it's kind of difficult. So as for the broader thing, I think I, I should probably read that book. Well, so we'll shift now to Q&A. Um, I have some additional questions if we have any pauses or gaps. But uh, Singh, I know you show us being away, but if, you're, if you are there, Singh, go ahead and put yourself back in the room. Uh, it's the little doorway at the bottom of the participant window. Let us know that you're interested in asking. In fact, I'm going to lower your hand, and you can raise it again. Uh, if you do want to ask a question. Uh, David asked, can you talk about your website, especially the community you have started? Sure. Uh, I, I started this website, The Art of Nonconformity, in February 2008. And that was right when I was finishing the master's degree at the University of Washington. And um, I, had, I had had this idea for a while of trying to visit every country in the world. Um, I had been to maybe 50 countries or so, and then I my first goal was to visit 100 countries, and as I got a little bit closer to 100, um, I realized that was that was a relatively easy goal because you could pick and choose your countries. And so then I set the goal of visiting every country in the world. Um, I'm a I'm a firm believer that every goal has a deadline, uh, and so it just kind of, it just kind of helps you to you know keep working on it. So I set the deadline uh, for my 35th birthday, uh, which is two years from now. And so I started the blog originally, the website, uh, to write about this quest and to write about um, my journey to every country in the world and you know what's involved in that. Now I learned a couple things um, very early on that were helpful. Um, the first thing I learned was I'm not a very good travel writer. There's other people that uh, that do that much better than I do. I wasn't good at um, you know going to places and doing like long destination pieces and <clears throat> you know taking photos and just a lot of people do that very well and so. I learned that I wasn't one of those. Um, and so I started writing much more about the quest aspect and uh, what's involved in pursuing a dream and um, the balance of freedom and responsibility, as we mentioned earlier, and all those kind of things. Um, and then the other thing I realized, um, you know, as the, as the community grew a little bit, which I'll, I'll talk about for a moment, um, the other thing I realized is, um, you know, a lot of people began to be attracted to the website, but they weren't necessarily interested in travel. And so they would say things like they would write in and say, oh, this looks really fun, uh, you know, interesting to me. I have an unconventional life. Um, here's what I'm doing, um, but I'm not really interested in travel. That's not really my thing. And so the implied question was, uh, you know, isn't nonconformity more than just travel? And of course it was, um, but I, it just took me a little while to kind of understand, you know, um, who this community was and what it was about. Uh, and so probably went through a process of at least a year, um, probably a year and a half. I mean, I'm still figuring it out, but I would say at least a year and a half before I really understood, you know, um, the community that that I have and that's growing. And so now I'm able to say, okay, you know, um, the art of nonconformity community. Um, we're about 50,000 people from all over the world. Um, it's very diverse. Um, there's no traditional target market. There's no, you know, age demographic. It's uh, gender-wise split almost 50-50, male-female. Um, you know, people from Many different countries. I have high school students, and then I have, you know, um, a guy who's 78 years old and comments on every post, um, and, and then all throughout, you know. So a lot of retired people, a lot of people in second careers, a lot of people who are working traditional jobs and want to work, you know, for themselves. So it's very diverse, and what unites the community is a desire for change, a desire for, um, you know, they're in some kind of transition or they want to be in a transition, 
uh, and they, they just want to do something different. So that's when I, so it really helped me to kind of like look at a bigger picture and to kind of get away from the travel, even though the travel is one part of what I do, um, and to figure out, okay, what can we do to bring people together um, to support, you know, independent thinking, and the overall goal is to help people live unconventional lives, which is a deliberately, you know, broad goal, and it applies different ways uh, for different people. So um, that's, that's the community. So the travel piece is interesting to me because I do a fair amount of travel as well, probably not as much as you do, but I get the perks and, uh, and I kind of know how to game the system. You know, I know what I can do to <laughs> get the good seat and you know, I typically do pretty well. And it occurs to me that there's maybe a, that's maybe a metaphor for what we're going to see in education in which those students who are autodidacts or self-motivating uh, will probably have more opportunities than others which immediately raises mm -hmm. fairness issues. So uh, mm -hmm. has that ever come up for you before? And if so, how would you respond to it? Fairness issues. Um, can you give me an example or, or what, would be the, what would be the objection? Well, so the objection, it's very easy to see in education, which would be, is, is it really fair that some students would, would get a better education than others because of their sort of innate ability to uh, learn, be an autodidact to learn by themselves and to seek things out. Mm, in travel, it would be I, I've got a better seat. Someone's paying more money than I am, and they're sitting in a worse seat just because they don't know the system. It, I mm. have an answer for it, but my guess is that culturally we're <laughs> uncomfortable with that. Yeah, no, I think you probably have a you probably have a good answer and a better answer. Um, you know, I like um, I have the story of when I was working in Liberia. Um, which we had just emerged from the Civil War and it's one of the poorest countries in the world. And I was there for about uh, six months, you know, during this four-year commitment. And uh, I had to come back to the States, uh, to Chicago for a conference. And so I just came back, uh, you know, for a weekend, literally. I, li I flew from Monrovia, Liberia to Brussels, then to Chicago. And uh, I remember staying at the courtyard by Marriott and, you know, going and seeing the breakfast buffet, which was just astounding, you know, because I, I, I like, went there and there's like, it's huge pancakes and omelets and, you know, just everything, basically, in your, in your very traditional big, you know, American breakfast buffet. And, uh, you know, at first I was really excited um, because I, you know, I'd been in Liberia for a while and we didn't have anything like that. And then I felt kind of guilty because I was like, oh, this is, you know, this is not fair. You know, what about my friends? First of all, what about my friends? You know, they're working, you know, with me back in Liberia. And then second of all, what about all the people of Liberia, you know, more importantly? Um, they don't get to eat pancakes like they don't get the omelets, and um, so I kind of like go through this process, and I, you know, I go from excitement to guilt, and then finally the way I resolve it is like I realize, you know, um, you know, my eating pancakes, you know, in Chicago doesn't harm anyone in Liberia. You know, really, um, it's not like I should go without that, or anybody else in Chicago or anyone else should not eat pancakes. Um, really, the goal is kind of what we talked about in the beginning of this conversation. The goal is to expand freedom and opportunity for others. You know. Um, and so I remember thinking, you know, the goal is really to bring pancakes to Liberia, you know, metaphorically. Um, the goal is, you know, to allow more people um, to be able to, you know, eat a good meal or do what they want or send their children to the school that they want or, you know, for, so that people can have their own educational experience or, or whatever. So that's, I would probably answer it with some kind of story like that. One of the things we've talked about in terms of cognitive issues is, um, you know, how we live in a society in which we're free from enough of the difficult things that we can choose to sort of be more proactive and positive and uh, self-fulfilling ways. Uh, Barb wanted to know, you seem to be focusing on freedom to do something. Do you also consider the freedom from wants, dangers, deliberately restricted growth, et cetera, to a similar extent? Mm, that's a great question. I like that. Let me just think about that for a second. Freedom one, yes. Um, I think I do. I'm not sure I would frame it in that same context. Maybe it's kind of like the freedom and responsibility thing that we talked about earlier, where I think more of like freedom and gratitude and integrated. Um, but uh, you know, I, I certainly, certainly agree that um, you know, I, I certainly try to be intentional about uh, things like you know, what I own. I'm not a minimalist in the sense of like, you know, categorizing, sorry, I'm not doing that word right, um, creating an inventory of a list of things that I own, you know, and trying to own only uh, 50 things or 100 things or something. But I think about, um, 
I try to be intentional about the things that I bring into my life, for example, uh, or what you know how I spend money or how I spend resources or time and things. Um, so I'm not sure that's directly related, but I may need to think about that some more. But great question, Barb. So Brad wants to know how do nonconformists learn and build from the wisdom of the past? The wisdom of the past. Well, I think through reading and through assimilation of you know other people's work and other people's experiences and being open not only to the wisdom of the past but also to the wisdom of, of other people. So that's part of connection and that's part of um, um, that's part of just recognizing that everyone has you know something to learn and something to contribute. In um, you know in my case, in my case talking about the community earlier, probably the greatest thing about this whole project uh, for me has been uh, not just the growth in numbers of the community, but the the quality of, of people that that I'm now connected to that I I never you know imagined would care about my work, or that I never imagined I would be you know in their circle. I never imagined I would come and talk you know to a group interested in the future of education. You know, it's very humbling for me. It's very grateful for me because I don't always get the questions right. I don't always know what to you know what to say, but um, I try to position myself as a learner. I recommend to everyone, like the most important thing you can do is position yourself as a, as a learner, um, recognize that everyone has something to give, everyone has something to share, and then you know think about how we can apply that. So you know I go I'll go away from this conversation and think, okay, you know I'm reading this text thing. Okay, David said some good stuff. Great question from Barb that I didn't answer very well. Uh, you know what, what do I think about that? Maybe next time I get that question, you know I'll, I'll have a better answer. Um, so I guess the I guess the idea is whether it's from the past, you know, or the present, to to just um, you know keep learning. There is, I think you're right about the freedom and responsibility piece, and you know I feel badly that I've never read Wealth of Nations, but you know my understanding is that along with this concept of free enterprise was the belief that this really only worked in a moral culture, and so the mm. idea that uh, uh, this is not uh, anarchy freedom. This is a this freedom right. is a freedom right. that we've been gifted in some ways, and so we use it to our best ability to for moral ends. And that, that again, freedom without responsibility um, isn't valuable necessarily, but freedom with responsibility would be. Uh, I'm not trying to answer the question for you, but those are the thoughts that come to me. Um, David made a comment in the chat. It's difficult to separate why some have less access. The idea that everyone pulls themselves up by their bootstraps is flawed. And mm. that led me to sort of wonder about uh, you know, fairness in education. And David, I'm, I'm going to make a response, and I'm, I'm interested in Chris's response. It seems as though it would be, a, it would be more fair, fairer to uh, teach the the ability to to discover your own strengths and passions and to move forward on them, than to not teach that. Chris, how does mm -hmm. that sit with you? Oh, I love it. That sounds great. Because I think I think what you're implying as well is that the, the teaching could be flawed. You know, the teaching might not be perfect. It might not be ideal. But isn't it better? Uh, you know, basically, isn't it better to, if nothing else, right? If nothing else, you know. If you can somehow transfer the skill of um, of asking good questions or the skill of helping people think about their motivations, um, then then isn't that valuable? And so I would say that's um, that's very valuable. And you can probably do a lot more than that. But if you only do that, then that's that's certainly worth it. So we've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, there, there's there's so much in the book that we didn't talk about. Um, we didn't talk about the hiring hiring a boss strategy, which I just loved. So there's a teaser for any of you who haven't read the book. Uh, pick it up and read about hiring a boss. Um, you talk about the power of convergence, sort of eliminating the unnecessary, uh, even going to radical exclusion. And I will mention that for a moment because I've discovered that as much as I learn from Twitter, the days that I don't look at Twitter at all, I feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so much more productive. You know, sort of. What strategies do you use personally for the kind of flow of information the internet provides? Okay, great. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah, for me, actually, um, I actually find Twitter quite freeing, and maybe it's just because I've made my peace with it, and I don't. Um, at least I try not to allow myself to get too distracted. Uh, 
with it. And but but that's just kind of come over time. And there are certainly different strategies and approaches. And I know some people love it or hate it. For me, um, something that's helped me to avoid the you know the distraction of the internet is um, uh, I don't um, I don't set goals by time, but rather by quota or um, focusing on deliverables much more than a time schedule. So I know some writers, for example, uh, or creators of any kind, any kind of creative person, um, who they get up at 8 o'clock in the morning and they write for two hours and they have an egg timer you know, or something that helps them. And I think that's great. Um, but for me, that has never worked. So what I do is I set, my, I set my goal based on a deliverable. So right now I'm writing my second book. And uh, you know, every day that's a book writing day, I have a deadline, I have a quota for myself um, of writing 1,000 words. And basically, you know, until the 1,000 words get written, I'm not going to be happy with myself. And uh, I'm going to force myself to stay off the Internet, or at least you know, partially off the Internet. I mean, that's going to be my number one priority. So I always like, okay, if that's what needs to be done. That's my deliverable. What, else, what are my other deliverables? Today we're going to do this interview. I've got some other emails. I've got some other commitments. Um, but I'm always focused on the deliverables as opposed to the time. So um, that's probably my, my first answer to that. Okay. I, I've put in the chat the links to your website and the link to your unconventional guide mm -hmm. site, which is a part of how you make a living. Um, we'll, we'll, sure. we'll leave the rest, including the annual planning uh, piece, which again is mm -hmm. well worth looking at in the book. If you haven't picked up the book, this is an excuse to do so. Chris, I'm going to clap for you now. really appreciate your coming on the show. <laughs> I'm using a little clapping hand in the participant. You'll see some others will clap there as well. Uh, really loved the book. Mm -hmm. you know, again, uh, I'm sure it was funny for you to hear me call it balanced. But I felt like it was a thoughtful approach uh -huh. to a new world that I see yeah. in emerging for students and for teachers mm -hmm. to thinking, thinking about their own careers. And I felt like I got a lot out of it. And um, it's uh, very easy to find, um, so I do recommend it highly. Uh, coming up. Hey, that's great. Yes. Hey, Steve. Sorry. Hey, so sorry to interrupt you. I just want to say thanks for having me. And uh, thanks to all of you guys as well. And I don't actually think balance is a bad word, so no worries there. Okay. Coming up on the future of education next week, Steve Denning on radical management. Sir Ken Robinson on his newly revised Out of Our Minds. Our thanks to Chris for being here. Thanks to you for listening. We'll let Chris go, but uh, we'll all stick around for five or ten minutes for the post-show chat if anybody wants to, to hang out. Then we'll close the room and post the recording first thing tomorrow morning. Thanks again, Chris. Thanks. That was really terrific. Really appreciate your coming on and, and making the time. <laughs> Bring Gatto back. You know, I would, but uh, I, you know, guaranteed that to uh, be a three-hour event. He was very hard to get a hold of. Tontator Gatto was. He doesn't have email. I think I actually had to have my daughter drop by a letter to him uh, in New York at his apartment building. Yes, you know what? We didn't bring it up tonight, but um, the Winner's Brain material uh, and the uh, Genius Within All of Us, those two interviews, those two books, David Shank and um, Mark Fenske. I, I think they're really relevant here. They're relevant to this whole concept of, of how we think about uh, uh, teaching and learning and, and what we're trying to transmit. And I actually wrote down a phrase that I'm interested in kind of playing around with, uh, which is, uh, let me find it here, uh, cognitive reorientation. It's sort of modeling how we respond um, cognitively to things and the degree to which these are really important aspects of, of what ends up happening to us in our lives. And that without that kind of modeling and help and understanding that we are in many ways led by our kind of passion, passions, the negative kind of passions or impulses uh, without being able to kind of put them into perspective and make choices about life. So I'm really curious about, um, uh, particularly in the winner's brain, sort of the non-science piece of that, which were the, were the several ways of kind of thinking about um, what's essentially cognitive behavior therapy, about how you respond to things, and that we don't really teach that.
Chris, I don't know what you're asking which title, but it was um, The Winner's Brain by Mark Fenske, and that recording is up, and also The Genius Within All of Us, which was uh, David Shank. And this, you know, I, as a hobby, I read these cognitive books, and I've probably read 10 in the last year. Uh, but, you know, many of them, predict, Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. You know, there is a, a, an enormous degree to which we're discovering or rediscovering that our brains don't often function in ways that are necessarily productive for us in our current cultural environments. And um, David saying, you know, cognitive behavior therapy is used when things get bad. Interestingly, I find cognitive behavior therapy a part of a very healthy life, meaning if we're, if we're not in a position to understand how we respond emotionally to events in our lives, like failure or disappointment, um, that, that, that many people who, who have learned those skills have probably learned them by virtue of a strong family or being within a culture in which there are you know, sort of sacred narratives or things that help describe how to overcome those. So um, you know, for me, it feels very compelling to try and find a way to make sure that that kind of wisdom and knowledge are a part of what we teach, which is certainly very different than other things. So Dave, I'm going to give you the mic since glad to hear your feedback. My background, Steve, is working as a behavior consultant, and uh, so I'm just speaking from my experience. It is really great to hear these people, so many people, talking about using cognitive behavioral approaches to fixing ourselves and doing things positively. Um, but my experience has been with emotionally disturbed kids and ADHD kids and all the kids, the, the, the uh, alphabet soup of different uh, disabilities. So I'm not sure if I missed it or if it was uh, if there was a question inherent in that or just a comment. Um, do you you're using it in that environment? Uh, does it occur, does it feel to you as though those are skills though that would also be valuable for kids who aren't in those circumstances? Definitely. Um, I actually I'm a technology director now. Um, that was a former life that I lived and uh, where that approach was used with those kids in in those really difficult situations. But certainly, it's I've also seen great teachers do great things in the classroom with kids uh, in a positive way uh, with these with these things in mind. Terrific. Okay, um, it looks like a couple of people are still leaving notes, but um, I think we're probably ready to wrap it up. Unless someone has a question, feel free to raise your hand, the hand with the green up arrow, or to put a note in the chat. Okay, everybody, have a good night or a good day, depending on where you are. I'm going to stop the recording. Thanks for listening. Take care.